Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Sample Hour. I'm your host, at Drew Sample on Twitter. I don't know why I always put an at sign like my parents <laughs> my parents gave me the name at Drew Sample, but Drew Sample, I am joined by um, somebody who I became a fan of just recently due to the documentary Inhabit. So if you guys haven't checked out Inhabit yet, um, please do yourself a favor and check it out. He is the uh, owner of Resilience Planning and Design, LLC. Um, you could definitely check him out. He's also got some YouTube videos. He is a college professor, just a just kind of a, a, a renaissance man, Mr. Steve Whitman. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm good, Drew. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, just like we were kind of talking about a little bit before, and I'm sure the uh, podcast listeners will um, kind of notice a change. So I kind of got in this whole um, wanting to turn grow food and not lawns. And it's like, it's amazing how when I actually started taking steps forward, what kind of just, I guess, wormhole opened up to me in the internet. <laughs> and I found Inhabit and I saw, um, so so just so I can kind of give my listeners a basis. So you're in New England, like most of other people in New Hampshire. And um, so one cool thing that I saw was you had purchased an older house and retrofitted it, which we'll get into it. But um First things first, you know, just, I mean, I just had Paul Whit or, uh, Paul Wheaton on the podcast and we talked about stuff he's doing um, out in Missoula, which is a totally different, I mean, a totally different landscape to New Hampshire. And, right. and um, so, and, and I just, you know, just really still trying to understand permaculture myself. I got, I feel like I have all the, the right books and everything else, but still taking the time to read them all. But um, so how, how were you first introduced to permaculture, Steve? So my journey began, I, I start losing track of the years. I think now it was over 12 years ago. And it began for me because I was really interested in the natural step, which is another framework for sustainability planning that came out of um, Scandinavian countries. And I was looking at that from my planning background. Um, at the time, I was working for the state of New Hampshire and looking at different frameworks to help communities. But I was also a new homeowner. So actually, it takes us back like 15 years, I guess, originally. I try to use my kids' ages to <laughs> keep track of what was going on in my life. But um, so yeah, so go back, you know, about 15 years or so. I was really interested in the natural step. I was looking at it from a planning perspective. But as a new homeowner, I was also looking for a way that I could try to make decisions. Um, was trying to reskill myself. You know, I was a suburban kid from Rhode Island, really didn't have a lot of skills, um, was of that generation. Yeah. And so I was trying to gain some of those skills and trying to decide on decision making for structures and property and kept coming across permaculture. Um, and then was reading about permaculture a little bit and found myself starting to teach at the university level here in New Hampshire for Plymouth State and started taking students overseas. And I was teaching courses in eco-village design. So I was using my planning background and my acquired sustainability knowledge. Um, and I was working with people in different eco-villages as part of the global eco-village network. And everywhere we went with students, we found that permaculture played a role. You know, it was played a role in the design process. It played a role in decision-making and kind of the invisible systems of finance and you know money exchange or labor exchange and it just became clear to me that that was kind of the superior model because it was scalable because i could use it at home or i could take it and use it with the community um so i was hooked so i can totally relate to your experience of then like feeding through a fire hose you know <laughs> reading everything you can and talking to everybody you can because it's still a very accessible population of folks that are involved yeah, it's it's really exciting. I think for me, it's um, you know, it, it, because it, you know, I had this this uh, personally, like I I read this uh, actually, and I had him on too. This guy Marvin Matsenbach, he like lives in this remote half the time remote island in Japan, and he had published this uh, stages of resiliency, and then it was it was so I, I was already like kind of in this direction of you know I don't want to I don't like the way a lot of things work 
And then it's then it's just like you just kind of keep unfolding, and it's like you stumble. I kept seeing permaculture everywhere, and I was just like, okay, I had no idea what it really was. And then when I saw like Inhabit, it really kind of opened that. I mean, that documentary I've showed that to my parents and a bunch of other people. It really kind of opened the door. I mean, uh, Costa, I think is that how you say his first name? Really, he really did a good job of getting access to you guys and letting you guys talk and show all the projects you have and then um so i had personally like i had my backyard which i was turning into a market garden and then i had this public lot like right down the street and i was trying to figure out what to do with it it it, it has a ton of shade and then it was like you know i'm just gonna try to do as much permaculture stuff as i can so I've been constructing some hugel culture beds and everything else like that, but um, but that's just even just a layer. I mean, the, yes. the thing for for what you're talking about with eco villages going into Africa and and even housing and everything else like that. I mean, permaculture it 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 hits on so many different things with with resilience and resilience planning. It's it's pretty fascinating to 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 try to to comprehend it all because I think a lot of people will get kind of the gist of what it is and they think they understand it but it's you have to die it's like the digger the the more designers you talk to that you know everybody kind of so in my so so far from what I've experienced everybody kind of develops their own style or their personality kind of comes out within their designs and um, so. When you when you first started going to Africa and you first started um, doing this stuff through the university, um, I mean, so as you originally planned to do permaculture, or it was just really something that just you just kept finding yourself kind of doing. When I first started uh, traveling abroad with university students, I was mostly in Europe and then in India and Australia. Okay, my and no, no, it's fine. And those were amazing experiences. It was amazing that students at the university level wanted to kind of go out and have these authentic experiences. They were trying to figure out how they could live a more sustainable existence and to be able to go and visit kind of case study communities and see how they work from the inside and get to talk to the people about how things have evolved and the lessons learned, you know, good and bad. Um, Just the positive nature that permaculture brings to everything, that kind of solution oriented, let's figure it out together um, knowing that we have probably most, if not all the tools we need, just, we need to apply them correctly. Um, students get so jazzed by that, that that kind of won me over. And while I was doing that, like over those years, I was also reading everything I could and practicing on my own property. Yeah. So our, I'll, at some point, um, when the time's right, I'll talk about our half acre property here in Plymouth, New Hampshire. Um, but I was kind of getting to pursue it from both directions, kind of the theoretical and case study, and then also hands-on practical and reskilling. And then over time, it did start also helping um, teach and then set up teaching teams in Africa, um, working with a nonprofit called Food Water Shelter out of Australia. That's pretty cool. And how did you how did you get connected with the nonprofit? The small world. It's um, I have been involved. Uh, pretty heavily with an organization called Sadna Forest, which is based in India, but now has a site in Kenya and a site in Haiti that I I help them establish. Uh, I encourage them to establish. They did all the hard work. But um, we did that after the earthquake in Haiti a number of years ago. And on my first trip to Haiti to give a two-day kind of introduction of permaculture workshop for free for volunteers that were uh, on-site helping set up the nonprofit's location, as well as villagers from Ansipit, Haiti, which is in the southeastern corner of the country. Um, arguably the most remote and poorest, although it's accessible from the Dominican Republic. Um, while I was there, I was fortunate to meet um, a woman who was excited about permaculture, and then she went on to do work in Africa and helped me connect with the nonprofit. Um, so yeah, it's a very small world, this permaculture network. <laughs> So when did so so when did you first want to start traveling? I guess does this come from before permaculture? Were you um, just in school and you were you were looking for kind of a way? You know, you said you grew up in the suburbs, where you're like, you know, I want to travel and make a difference. It started actually just after I had started working um, at the university part time as a teaching lecturer. 
And I was just fortunate to have a mentor who was very involved with study abroad. And so he asked if I had any ideas of things I wanted to do. And I had been, at the time, thinking about the natural step um, just as a framework. And there was a book that had just come out on the natural step, kind of from like a planning community organizing perspective. Mm -hmm. And it was featuring case studies, both from Sweden and New England. And so I asked if I could take students to Sweden. And I then found myself in Sweden about six weeks later doing a site visit and meeting up with people to put together this course. And then within, I guess it was five months, um, I was on the ground with 17 students. So that started it. Um, and it allowed me to do a couple things. It allowed me to help students get out and see things that were happening and really have experiences and network. Um, but it also allowed me to continue my own learning, which was fantastic. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. I, I, uh, pretty jealous no i'm just kidding but uh, it's pretty it's pretty awesome to get to travel but actually like make a difference while you travel so you know you've, you've mentioned the natural step a, a couple times and i'm not really familiar with it what is the natural step is it just kind of um kind of like natural farming in the sense is it like kind of a fukuoka um what no it's actually close natural step has four systems conditions they call them it's okay. these four kind of um principles but they're actually really close to the three permaculture ethics Okay. So they give you, they give you these four elements um, related to reducing fossil fuel use and not using um, harmful man-made chemicals, um, keeping natural systems intact. That, so they give you these four guiding principles that are really similar to the permaculture ethics, but what it doesn't give you is that then that kind of site level um, guidance in the design process. So it's been used a lot at the municipal level and by corporations to decide on you know, where they're going to buy materials from, how they're going to shift energy supply. But it, does, it didn't have that site level design aspect that permaculture offers that's so strong. And that's what won me over um, to really find permaculture just being the most scalable, flexible framework I can imagine. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, so I guess you know we've kind of we've kind of teased the audience about your house. So um, you know, again, I recommend if you if you look up Steve on um, on YouTube or if you just watch and have it, you can see his beautiful home. It's a it's an older home, um, and it's 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 an awesome house. What what year actually was your house constructed? Eighteen ninety. Yeah, so it's it's definitely old, and it was constructed in a very old way. And you've really retrofitted it with some pretty cool things. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, if you want to dive in and just tell the audience about the story of your home and, and everything you have going on there. No, I would. I'd love to. Um, so we're located in Plymouth, New Hampshire, which is a, a fairly small town. Um, it acts as a regional center because it has a university and a hospital and kind of shopping in the region located here. But the town population overall is only about like 7,000 people. And we live just a couple blocks back from Main Street, and we live on a half-acre lot that was very suburban um, in character. It was, you know, mostly lawn, but this 1890s house was not only well-constructed, it was really well-cared for over the many owners um, that have lived here. So we moved into Plymouth and purchased the property as a way of reducing our transportation footprint and then starting to take steps towards, you know, a, a more resilient lifestyle. Um, and it's been amazing. So now we've been here for over 14 years on the property. And some of the things we've done have focused on the structure itself, um, you know, just some deferred maintenance things, but also making this 1300 square foot home that work for my wife and my two sons and I um, as a flexible, sustainable living space. So materials selection, Energy efficiency and conservation have been really guiding forces, and per permaculture ethics and principles have really helped me kind of evaluate decisions along the way, and in some cases decide not to do anything. Yeah. Um, but we've done everything from upgrading the shell of the structure, increasing insulation um, in all of the in all of the walls, ceilings, and floors, uh, changing over the heating system and incorporating technology to cut our fossil fuel use by 40%. And what kind of did you do to the heating system? So what did you what what kind of changes did you guys make to that? 
um, we added a small, um, pretty typical plumbing heating computer um, that actually is hooked up to our furnace and it looks at outside and inside temperature. Uh, prior to that, we had a steam system that had one zone. The whole house, whole house was one zone. Um, as we switched things over and we worked with our heating contractor, we switched from steam to, uh, I guess you'd say, lower temperature wall-mounted radiators. So we run PEX tubing, plastic tubing, that's insulated in the walls, um, as opposed to the old cast iron um, pipes that would go to a steam line. And as we did that, we're able to start to create zones within the house and use this little um, Honeywell computer to actually calculate where we needed heat at any given time and then allow it to make decisions on outside temperature and the temperature of the, the furnace itself. And if the water is warm enough, instead of just turning the furnace on when you call for heat, it just circulates that already warm water. So that dramatically cut down on the number of times we'd hear the, the furnace kick on, because in some cases, just a small circulator pump would kick on and satisfy the need for heat. Um, That's awesome. So those, yeah, we did that. We added solar hot water to reduce our domestic hot water need. We built the composting toilet that there are several videos of online and was featured in Inhabit. Yeah. I actually had a lot of questions about the composting toilet because a lot of people get really freaked out by composting oh. human waste. Well, I mean, I think it's it's part of us, part of how we're wired. We're, we're supposed to be freaked out about keeping our food and our waste in our nest. So, um, you know, we're kind of, you know, whether it's from when we were living in caves or who knows when, but I mean, it's a good principle to keep them separate, but it can be done really well. And that was one of the advantages of traveling around to the eco villages and other and then permaculture sites um, here in the U.S., but seeing the different ways that human waste was being managed really well and how they had created their systems, what their series of trial and error was. And then I was able to, to create that system modeled after successful systems I'd seen elsewhere. Now that's, that's pretty awesome. And then why do you, um, so do you, so, cause you talk a little bit about an habit. Um, well actually you talk actually for most of it, what he shows is your, composting toilet but you have some other cool stuff going on in your yard but um i kind of cut you off what so um we all finished with everything you've done to the house now you said solar powered heat now did you switch over your electricity to solar panels or no the solar solar hot water they're evacuated tubes so they help warm the water that we're using for showering and washing and things like that okay. we do have two small solar systems on the property uh, one is on the house and it's linked to the pump for our hot water system. So it circulates water from the roof down into a tank. And then the, the other half of that electric solar electric system runs a fan for the composting toilet. Okay. Uh, in, the, the only other elements um, really worthy of note in this podcast tonight are all the rooms have been done over now and we've used local materials. We've used non-toxic, no VOC finishes. So we've used natural oils, We've used no VOC paints. Um, we've used clay finishes on walls. Um, we've used soapstone for the countertops from nearby in southern Quebec, um, locally made cabinets. I've been really intentionally addressing each of the rooms and our needs to make a co what I think is a cozy home. Um, a lot of that footage is on the cutting room floor for Inhabit, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Because those guys were smart and they knew what they needed to show from each site and they couldn't show all the aspects from all of our sites and keep uh, people watching. But I uh, would I would pay gladly if uh, <laughs> Costa listens, which I don't think he does, <laughs> but I'd pay gladly to see everything at everybody's location because everybody's spot, like everybody had just this cool different thing that they had going on, but it was so like, it was one thing to the next. It's like, wow, wow, yeah. wow. But um. So you did say now for catching because you said it was rainwater and then we can move on. But now, do you do you harvest a lot of rainwater too? So outside of the house itself, um, we have two other structures on the property. One is a small twelve by eighteen building that's my office, um, and the other is a bio shelter that we built, I guess, about six years ago. Um, we are harvesting rainwater off the bio shelter. Okay. Um, the bio shelter is a unique. We could have a podcast just on that bio shelter, <laughs> but um, 
so we are harvesting rainwater. The, the bioshield to harvest all its own rainwater and fills its own tanks to be used inside in the greenhouse portion of the building. Um, elsewhere on the property, we've done significant plantings. So we have lots of swales on contour. We have a plum thicket. We have numerous fruit trees and perennial plantings. And what I would say now is a pretty mature food forest. Um, some of the peaches featured in Inhabit were from our trees last year, or two years ago. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the landscape that, you know, in permaculture design doesn't really look significant for the first couple of years. I've heard Dave Jackie refer to it as that um, leap, creep, and reap. <laughs> uh, reap, leap, and reap. Um, so that basically, you know, you put these perennials in, they move kind of slow, you don't see a big change, and then all of a sudden they leap in growth, and all of a sudden you're reaping the benefits of these systems. So um, if you walk around our half acre, we're only using probably about 50 to 60% of the site. So we're only using about a quarter of an acre. And we have three rice paddies and numerous perennial plantings, as well as some annual gardens. And how much, so how much food do you think you produce? Um... Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> I mean, really not enough for, you know, two people with more than two full-time jobs. We were producing a fraction of our annuals. We're producing a significant amount of our greens through the year. Yeah. But even with all the fruit, like right now, one of our apple trees is just bearing hundreds, if not thousands of apples. And I know we won't be able to capture all that energy. Um, and it's probably still just a fraction of the fruit we'll eat in a year for four people. Yeah. Um, that makes that makes sense. Now, did you do like transplants for the for the fruit trees, or did you try to grow from seed? I've heard different different opinions. I know certain people prefer seed, but then, from my understanding, in like a suburban or urban environment, like you want to do transplants just because of the likelihood of if you go from seed that the fruit is actually right. good um, or not. No, that's all true. We we one of our apple trees um, was on site and we brought it back into production. It took a few years of careful pruning to do that. The others have been transplants, like you said. Um, and then we've had a couple that we successfully grafted fruiting varieties onto um, crabapple stock that was just, you know, native crabapple stock that was growing. Um, but apples definitely are, you know, one of the hardest fruits. Yeah, I, I watched Permaculture Orchard. I don't know if you've had a chance to check that one yes. out yet. But... What he's doing, that was pretty cool. I, I know um, some of my friends that, that graft trees, and I was blown away when I found out that you could put cherry branches on apple trees and all this other cool stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, I, so apples in general, from what you're saying, though, just to get kind of back onto what you were saying, is it's more likely with an apple seed that it's going to turn out to just kind of be a spitter than versus a, an actual fruit producer, an edible fruit producer. Yeah, and that's why people usually graft from scion wood um, to get the variety that they actually like. Yeah. Um, and there are just so many. We we now have um, a lot of Asian pears growing. We have hazelnuts, raspberries, awesome. blueberries, strawberries, peaches. Um, someday we hope to have pawpaws. We haven't been as successful as uh, Jonathan Bates yet with pawpaws. But there are a lot of these fruits that are just easier. Um, kiwis, we probably have you know, a hundred gallons of kiwis almost ready. Um, and, and do you grow the vines on your, on your fruit trees and everything else? Like, uh, I saw Mark Shepard does that. Yeah. Mark does that. We grow some native grapes on some of our fruit trees and on some of our black locusts, but, um, the kiwi vine we grow on its own trellis structure, pergola structure. Um, they're beefy vines. They want to rip stuff down. So we have it in a place where we can control it and we can get the, as much of the fruit as possible. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. Now, do you guys, have you guys taken like any of your food? I know, I mean, I'm guessing you're growing most of your food for your own consumption. Do you ever have like a surplus in time to, to try to take it to like a, a farmer's market or anything like that? We really haven't. Um, there's a pretty active local food community here in our, in the Plymouth area. Um, so if we've had excess food that we don't freeze or we're not eating ourselves um, or we don't dry, then we've given it away mostly. That makes um, sense. We have the potential to, to do some selling, and there's actually a great pop-up restaurant that just started in our community that I need to reach out to. 
um, that I think could use some of our horseradish and kiwi and some of the things they can incorporate into their dinner experiences because they only have um, one dinner a week that they offer. So someplace that has a lower volume we could probably work with, but primarily we're focused on just using it here. No, that makes sense. I know that's like, uh, cause it's just one of me and like, and I already had this idea of taking food to sell it. And then it seems like trying to, it's, it, it, for me, something that I've kind of run into is like a lot of permaculture style. It's not necessarily, you can't do market type stuff with permaculture. I know that, um, obviously because of Mark Shepard, but it's like a lot of times, um, something that I've just kind of realized and I, and I could be wrong is it's, um, I feel like a lot of people kind of struggle to, um, and I'm not saying you're struggling because it's not really your focus, but like struggle to kind of have this balance between like their, their, well, I'm really talking about myself here, Steve. So <laughs> I'm struggling to have this balance between, you know, I want to focus on perennials and perennial greens and stuff like that. And I know I can sell those at a market and, and do a market garden for annuals, but I want to have a bunch of perennials too. And I know that there is a huge market like especially for berries and good fruits and um you know nuts and everything else like that but I, I think it's it's you know it's a matter of i think it's like i'm still just so green and everything and it's like really figuring out how i want my designs to be and um because i don't i don't have a family yet so but i know in the future you know when i do learn this stuff like i have in my brain of where i would like to be um versus where I am now. So it's, it's like, it's interesting to think about, um, just the different strategies. Cause I know I was at, uh, I went to a spot last night and they're like more of an urban farm. And, and I know just kind of like what you said, low volume, like they said, you know, we just kind of take what we can to restaurants and they're pretty happy to just get whatever we can offer. Um, so I'm um, but you did say you dehydrate fruit and everything else like that. Um, how long did it take for you to learn that? Um, just the, just that whole process and what strategies, like how is it? I'm sure it's been a continuous thing, but the strategies of of keeping the food that you're producing and trying to not you know waste any of that energy. Like, how long is it kind of? Is it? I'm guessing every year you're really kind of honing in um, how to how to harvest most of that production. I think I think you're you're dead on. I think a couple of things. Um, yeah, you don't try to learn every preservation. Um, approach in one year. <laughs> so, you know, you add, you try fermentation, you figure it out, you figure out what you like fermented, what you can make. We've made kimchi and sauerkrauts and stuff here. Yeah. Um, but then the next year you try drying some of your, you know, some of your herbs and other perennial flowers that you can make teas with. And then, you know, you keep adding a new trick. And I think, you know, to go back, it's scalable like that. You know, you can keep reskilling yourself and adding a new skill to the toolbox. But I think also, like you said, to figure out what your goals are today and to design your system and gain that experience with those plants in a way that's manageable for you to do it is the totally the right approach. Because if it's going well for you and you're enjoying it and you're learning something and you're not freaking out, you're likely to keep expanding on that. Yeah. And then when a family comes into play, you know, and you have other members of your household you can scale it up in whatever way you need to. If you need to scale it up to produce more of the food for, you know, your family, or if you need to scale it up to have a couple of specialty crops that you like growing that you think you could grow well, you know, for other people to do value added products or use at a restaurant or whatever. Um, you kind of hold that out there as a goal. If you try to do it all now, um, it's frustrating and the learning curve is probably just too steep. So I think you're taking an awesome approach. I'm trying, man. It's been a, it's been like, it can be overwhelming, but what is cool is like, we do have the farmer's market and I've been going there and, um, you know, my friend, it's, it's my friend and I, my friend Joel and I, we've like, Joel really kind of got me pointed in the direction and, um, and it's, it's been interesting for the, for the both of us. Cause it's his really first year with production with doing market gardening stuff. And, and, you know, learning the demand of everything. But, I mean, we always have plenty of food for, for us to eat for a week and other people. And then also for when it comes to annuals. Um, so, I mean, that's not that's not as difficult. But at the same time, it's like, man, I'm still 
I still feel like I'm I'm wasting some stuff or it's going in a compost pit and it's like there's I I still got to rework this equation and figure out how I could do that and then when you're saying man I try some of this stuff out I'm like I haven't even thought of doing any of that stuff yet. It's okay, it'll come. It'll come. <laughs> but um um so so kind of moving on um cuz I, I you know I definitely would would will want to have you on again but to kind of you know tease a little bit of your earth structure i guess is it did you did you do it more like a, is it kind of like an earth ship or is it a uh more because i guess they're all technically earth ships or there's different names for them i know paul's really into um paul wheaton's really into the wafatis michael reynolds right. is really into the earth ship was it kind of something you know when you modeled it was it just something that you had kind of taken from different spots and said i want to kind of do it on my own because I, I, because from the sound of it, you've really been focusing on um, the human structure and human housing, which a lot of people don't always realize that that's all part of permaculture. It's not just food systems. And um, so I, I guess, um, would you like to expand on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely did start on our primary household first, um, trying to get our energy budget down and our impact overall down and just have a really pleasant place to live while yeah. here. Um, but then the bio shelter and Jonathan Bates, I give credit for getting me to finally start seeing it as a bio shelter and not a greenhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, ours is actually all above ground. It doesn't, it's not actually banked into a hill and it doesn't use kind of the construction techniques that Michael uses with our ships. Ours is more of a kind of a new England approach to a greenhouse, um, that has multiple functions. So like in permaculture, we talk about having multiple functions for any element in the landscape. Our greenhouse design probably lingered for about two years. You know, different sketches thrown up on the refrigerator that you could walk by and someone in the household would realize there was something idiotic about <laughs> the design at any <laughs> time. You know, the roof went the wrong way or whatever. Um, what we ended up with is a um, 20 foot wide east-west structure that's 16 feet deep. Um, so the front half of the bio shelter is a 10 by 20 greenhouse and it's locally milled wood, mostly hemlock. Um, so it's a, actually a post and beam because at the time I built it, I didn't know how to do joinery appropriately and I was in a rush. So I didn't really do it as a timber frame, um, in the old, uh, wooden tongue and, um, post and beam, not post and beam, sorry, uh, mortise and tenon fashion. I did it as more of a large lag bolt uh, post and beam structure and then it has all salvaged uh, sliding glass doors and french doors and stuff around it to allow light in the roof material we did buy some polycarbonate roofing which was a really good investment because um, it keeps its color you can decide the thickness and how much resistance to heat loss you want to have um, and then within that structure, there are raised beds, there are shelves for, for growing um, starts and starting perennials. And we have an upper deck, which we use for drying. So for dry, mostly for drying herbs and things like that. And then it has rainwater capture inside. And then one of the more interesting things of this bio shelter is that we built a um, subterranean heating and cooling system, which is often called a climate battery. And that's become... Um, pretty popular recently um, through the work of Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute. And I think Jerome's new book is going to, I haven't seen it yet, but I think it features a lot of detail on how he created these climate battery systems in his greenhouses. Um, and I visited him when I was out there doing my permaculture teacher training in, must have been 2008 or nine, And spent some time talking with him about ours just as we were getting ready to build it. Um, so it basically takes the excess warm air during the day and pumps it into the ground to bank it in there below the root zone of the plants and then exhausts the cooler um, ground temperature air. And then you can run it in reverse at night. You could take cool evening air and bring it down through the warm ground and warm the, the greenhouse. You know, it, it gives you a little bit of a season extension in the fall and the spring. It doesn't, you know, create December conditions that are like July. Um, it doesn't create miracles. Yeah. No, that's still pretty awesome, though. So it's kind of, um, what is it? It's con convection heating kind of style then? Like it's it's trying to store, it, 
Like I, I guess how does it um how exactly does it do does it pull the air in and push the air out? Um is it is it like a fan system or yeah, there's an inline fan and you basically have two pipes. You have uh, an input and an output. And so the inline fan draws the warm air, which our greenhouse portion of the bioshelter is fourteen feet tall. So we can get I mean, if we don't have the fan on, we can get temperatures that are north of 120 degrees. Oh, wow. We don't have a need for that warm air up in there, so it's better stored in the ground. Absolutely. So that inline fan kicks on. There's a thermostat. Inline fan kicks on, draws the warm air down to the ground, and then it puts it through um, five pairs of smaller pipes. They're like four-inch, what we call perimeter drain, that's used for like a curtain drain around buildings. It's black plastic, flexible. It has little slits in it that would let water enter if you were using it for drainage. But in this case, it lets warm air escape into the sand. Um, and then those connect to the output and the air comes up cooler. So you can feel it going in super hot. You can feel it coming out cool. Um, one of the other benefits um, that I'll also give credit to Jonathan Bates on this one, it seems to help us control our humidity. And he made that observation when he was traveling around looking at different bioshelter designs. Um, and I know he and a few others have started to incorporate climate batteries into the design of bioshelters or basic greenhouses because you have the ability to kick it on and take warm, moist air and have it hit a dew point in the ground where it will actually deposit the water mm-hmm. instead of having water or moisture build up inside the greenhouse and create problems with mold or, you know, rot issues. So it sucks. It, so it doesn't just suck in the warm air. It kind of dehumidifies the room as well, and it takes it some moisture into the ground. It does. That's it's amazing. Cool. Yeah, and I hadn't really picked up on that until I was explaining to him the sequence of like how it works throughout the year. Yeah. And he he was asking a lot of questions, you know, probing my observation, my permaculture observation, and he was able, able to help tease that out. Um, and then the backside of the bio shelter has a shed, a large shed, six feet by about 15 feet. And then in the remaining space, there was a chicken coop. Um, when we originally designed it, we had been using chicken tractors on the property. We had been raising chickens for eggs. And so we built a chicken coop into the structure and insulated it and had a few flocks of pretty happy chickens. Um, since then, we've moved away from working with animals for a variety of reasons. That's for another podcast. But, uh, <laughs> um, because we're not using it for animals, our backup design had been if we ever stopped using it for chickens, that we could use that space for a sauna. So that's a project for the future, maybe to use that space and create a sauna that would provide also a little residual heat into the greenhouse. That's pretty awesome. And I saw too um, from a YouTube video that you had, um, your, your beds pretty much go, I mean, so the, like you said, it's a, it's a bio, biomass, but it was cool because the beds, you had like some stacked soil and you said it goes all the way into the ground. So it's not, there's no, um, there's, there's no separation between that soil in the bio, um, the biostructure and, and, um, the ground. So I thought, that, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so and then for your office now, did you design? So when you designed your office as well, did you did you is it um did you kind of take is it is that a semi bio structure? Was there any um, intentional design with that as well? No, the office is now. I built the office on site twelve years ago, just as I went into consulting. Okay. So I was teaching at the university part time, and then went into consulting with a partner before I started um, my firm now, Resilience Planning and Design, and I needed a place to go to work every day. I didn't want to drive down to the capital in, here in New Hampshire and Concord, as I had. Um, and I also didn't want to rent a place uh, in town. I wanted to be on the property and be able to keep systems and do some of the stuff in my spare time. And I had little kids. I wanted to be here like when the bus came and when they get off the bus and like all those logistical things. Absolutely. So, the office was really um, something that we built pretty quick. We built the walls six inches thick. Um, they could, the structure could do to be better insulated, and that's something I'd like to do at Energy Retrofit now that it's a dozen years old. Um, but it's a 12 by 18 foot structure. It's made largely out of recycled materials, 
um, the floor system, much much of the wall systems and the exterior clapboards all came as scrap from other projects and from demolition materials. And then we spent some money on um, a really good standing seam metal roof, which we'll be able to set up rainwater catchment on. And we got all the doors and windows as also rejects, construction site rejects. They were in good shape. They were the wrong size. They had a defect that's somewhere along the way. And we were able to rec- rectify that. So it's a pretty simple structure that's had a whole series of different heating systems in it as I've experimented with pellets. And now I'm going to be putting an air source heat pump in there. Uh, we've had commercial grade composting toilets. And now we have the simplest of them all, the five gallon um, composting bucket, <laughs> which works really <laughs> well. <laughs> so that's been a fun space. Kind of my retreat where I get to go and, you know, consulting staff or work on stuff for the university that's awesome and then um so for the rainwater because you said you catch it how much so you know to kind of get into more of that because that's something else i've heard a lot of different opinions about if you're in the city uh yeah just because a lot of people um you know i mean they they're they either say don't do it at all and some people say well you should but at least get some bigger bigger gallons or bigger bigger water catchment systems like I guess what what is your opinion based on your experience? Because I'm, I have a rain barrel that I need to hook up, but we get so much rain here in Ohio that I know a couple storms it will be full because it's only about fifty gallons. Um, so I mean, have you? Because I I mean, there's even like a business where people um, in Columbus they'll come in and they'll convert your whole house to run on rainwater. Have you thought about um, adventuring with that? I don't, I'm not even sure. I, I'm assuming New Hampshire gets close to the same amount of rain that we do in Ohio, um, but it is you know Northeast is a little bit different. So um, I guess that was that was that was a question for me to pick your brain about. Yeah, I mean for us it's been it's something I wanted to do longer ago and just started experimenting really this year and have had plans to on our rainwater catchment. I mean, what we've done is we capture and store the rainwater from our property in the ground. So, I mean, from a permaculture perspective, the best thing you can do is, you know, spread it and sink it. And so we've done that for all the water on our property gets spread and and sunk in the ground. And it's super hydrated our spot. And then any overflow goes into the rice paddies. Um, We also take street water. We've intentionally taken... um, Inspired by Brian Lancaster's work in Tucson, we take street water from Parker Street, where we live, into the site, into the into both the forest garden and into some of the swales. So we're taking a tremendous amount of water in. I would like to move to actually using some of the rainwater home for drinking. And so our next project planned for our house is we're going to be doing a timber frame screen porch off the side of my house. Um, we have the door ready to go. We have the spot ready to go. We just need to do some excavation work and then the design and construction of the timber frame. And I'm waiting for my two teenage sons to be a little bit older so they can actually help with that work and they can have the satisfaction of constructing something on the property. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Hopefully leave here with more skills than I left high school (laughs) with. Um, When that's done, we'll be able to set up we figured out how we want to do the rainwater systems and adjacent to that, there'll be a large um, cistern in the ground. And my hope is to actually collect roof water and have the overflow go to this large cistern. And so right now we go and we get spring water from down the road from a really great spring. Um, But there's no reason why we couldn't be using this cistern water as our roof waters or spring water even if we want to run it through a sand filter or a carbon filter or something. Um, the bio shelter will continue to provide its own water and the overflow from that and the overflow from the system we're going to put on the office will eventually go to our final big project on the site, which will be um, a small swimming pond. And so it'll help keep that swimming pond, you know, level up, hopefully. Because we do probably get similar rain to you. We get like 43, 44 inches a year. Yeah, I think this year, I don't know if it's been the same for you, but this year we've gotten crazy more amount of rain, um, especially in June. Um, okay. Prevented from a lot of me getting land and everything done. Yeah, it's hard. Um, but it was good. Uh, so 
Now, that was something else because I, I know you'd mentioned swales before. And then so for your swale system, because it's, it's um, you know, when I usually think of swales, I think of them in like, like bigger, bigger landscapes. And, you know, you're in a suburban landscape. Now, did you get like a backhoe or did you do earthworks? Or did you dig the swales by hand or what was the strategy you used? It was all done by hand. So you're right. I mean, the scale of it is smaller. So some of our, we have some micro swales that are fairly small. Um, and then we have a couple of larger swales that are kind of built into the landscape. And we just did it as we worked in those areas. And we did it with a shovel. Um, same for the three rice paddies. Just did it with a shovel. It was not big enough to really warrant the use of, you know, large machinery. And I think in our case, our site being so small, the use of machinery could have been more disruptive. Yeah. Than just, and I, I also, you know. I could use a a little extra work out here and there. So um, it didn't hurt. Yeah. (laughs) I'm the same attitude. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to, um, you know, doing this pond project behind the bio shelter, um, we have someone that we're going to work with who use, he's got a, he was a permaculture student of mine. He's got a mini excavator. He's got a brilliant mind for seeing terrain and seeing how to adjust terrain. Um, and so he works, he runs his all his equipment on 100% biodiesel, and we're excited to give him another project for his portfolio. Yeah, that's awesome. I need to, um, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. I, I definitely am trying to get a, an eye for terrain, and now I just feel like I'm doing a lot of staring and looking. And it's, <laughs> it's <an> observation. <laughs> yeah, it's really been, um, because it, like I had this public lot, and I have it through the city, and the um the city which i don't i don't know if you run into this um you pro- I, I mean like for me I, I don't really know anybody at the city uh in columbus so when i applied it's like they have this land uh land restoration project which is actually great the whole idea of it but when i had to sign up for it like the guy hassled me a bunch and i had to fill out this application like three times and i had to have this site plan and then he approved it and then it's it's like he wanted to hold me to the plan, and I was like, you know, when I first chose this land, it was covered in snow, and then it was covered in trash. I had no idea how the shade works. I can't cut down any trees or anything like that. So it's like it's been a, it's actually been a really good learning experience, and I just hope that the city allows me to keep it for next year so I continue to learn because I I don't know I just kind of have a bad feeling that um I don't know I haven't had the best relationship with this guy. And, uh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, so for right now, like the whole front part of it, I figured out how I could do some annual beds and I, and it's like the soil is really not good. Um, so what they, what they, what they did pretty much. And, and I don't, I don't know if it's like that in New Hampshire too. If an area, basically if, if a house is abandoned and the city takes it, it takes it over, they bulldoze it. Um, and then they pretty much just filled the basement in with topsoil, which probably has a lot of risk to it so right. so what i've done is we've just kind of covered it all in wood chips because i'd get free wood chips from the city um and then i'm just stacking compost um that i get from a horse farm for free and i'm just kind of using these composts as like these vegetable beds and i'm kind of doing these weird designs because i just felt like being creative and doing these big circles within circles and um so and then the, the back portion and i'm just sharing this with you steve because no most people don't care to listen to what I tell them because they're like, oh, okay, man. But uh, anyways. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, so anyways, just kind of, you know, um, the hoople culture beds are kind of cool. And it was just something that when I was looking, there was already this dip kind of in the in the middle of the property. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with this dip? I could fit, fill it in. And then I was like, well, why don't I just, you know, make a hoople culture bed out of it? And um, so I took some, I actually found some free cottonwood on Craigslist. So I drove and picked up as many of these 70-year-old chunks of cottonwood as I could, which wasn't many because that stuff is super heavy. <laughs> like, it's not light at all. And I, you know, deadlifted it up into my, the back of my truck. And then I took it back and I dumped it in. And then um, this guy across the neighborhood, he's trying to be helpful. Uh, I, I rarely run into him, but he's, he's definitely like, um, you know, I live in a lower socioeconomic area. Like, it's really cheap to live. But the whole point of me... I wanted to kind of put food in a food desert. Like I was kind of inspired by watching all these documentaries talking about food deserts and everything. 
And then I was like, well, I should really, you know, I, you know, listen to, you know, you guys talking and have it, listen to Mark Shepard talk. And like when Mark was saying, you know, if I walked away from this land, it would still be producing food for the next thousand years. I was like, that's pretty awesome. Like I would love to have that kind of impact on land. And, um, so then I started thinking, you know, you know, I, I wanted to, so, um, wanted to kind of bring back to this community, but this guy back to him, he's been bringing a lot of biomaterial and he started stuffing it all in my hoogle bed, which I didn't really want him to do, but I could pick it out. So it's just like stacks of like tree limbs and everything. So I'm just going to spread it out and uh, bury it with compost. And then I have, I have a bunch of seeds for berry bushes and, and everything else like that. But I think I might need to get some transplants. So trying to figure out if I should just go from seed. And then I thought maybe, I'll start some I'll start some plants from seed in kind of a controlled environment and look to transplant them. Um, so I'm really still trying to figure out what my strategy is going to be on this back portion of land. Um, and it's just for this lot. And then there's some other other land I'm getting access to to um, so I've kind of been trying to inspire as many people to kind of do this with me and it's been working. So it's been pretty exciting. So I'm still trying to figure out what exactly I'm going to do with it. But I know I want to have like a nice little food forest portion and just kind of, like you said like on your property is an annual garden section because the, um, you know, you want to be able to take and give to the soil at the same time. I think that what you just described about this piece of property, I mean, for one, your, your passion and love for the property comes across pretty clearly. Um, and I think it's it's a story that's really familiar. It sounds so similar to how I get started on my site and probably a lot of other listeners too. So, I mean, with each day you spend there, your observation gets deeper. You have a better understanding of how the systems work, you know, what what, what will be happy where, and you have time to re- do research into those various plants that you want to introduce. So it'd be nice if the city allowed you to have some kind of revision process where you could come in and update that plan for the property and show how you have, you know, more growth and understanding and how your vision has evolved. Um, because as you are doing this and you're, you're protecting that soil underneath and you're creating new soil above some of those places that are ideal for annual beds, you know, this year or next year may eventually become some of your best perennial beds down the road. So you can grow into that slow and steady. Yeah. And, you will create that place that will last, you know, and provide food for hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, and really be a resource for that neighborhood. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my goal. So I, in like my backyard, it's a rental house and I have, I pretty much did everything like an annual bed and it was kind of like a, uh, did you ever see back to Eden, that documentary when the, it's kind of similar to him on the way he did with the wood chips and the compost. So I have like just kind of rows and I'm going to, I'm going to take them all the way back. Um, to the house and the other half because this house was abandoned for like seven years um i think they had a basketball court on it for at one point in time because it's half of it's all blacktop so i don't know i don't know if i'm going to do anything with that at all i thought about taking cardboard and just kind of stacking layers and kind of lasagna bedding it up in the back um i don't know i might just keep it the way it is i might just try to i might try to get some chickens and just lay, you know, hay and stuff on top and try to maybe stack it with chickens or working with animals. But I don't know yet, Steve. It's like, a, it's, it's a process. And um, it is a pro it's a process on any of our sites. And yeah. I think you can't, I mean, you can't grow as a permaculturist until you're actually giving yourself that time to do it. So with all this, you're growing, you're getting a lot of knowledge. And at some point, you know, some of the plants that you establish will start to proliferate proliferate and you'll be able to share those or trade them for other plants and that's one of the things we've done is you know we have extra um, hops so we have extra other plants at any given year and we give them to other people who are just getting started which kind of helps grow the amount of permaculture happening but we also sometimes trade so that becomes a real fun thing to look forward to yeah absolutely and then, so something else too just because you said hops and i know that you said you you fermented so have you made your own alcoholic beverages or what are what are the coolest things that you've been able to kind of make with all the food that you're producing um i have not my wife actually had made a uh, liquor out of uh nanking cherries out of our bush cherries oh that's awesome we, yeah we've grown hops now for i think about four or five years um 
And I'm embarrassed to say I have not actually done anything with my hops, but I have traded them successfully for finished beer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's <laughs> Now, do you guys have a lot of craft brewers um, in Plymouth? Um, I know we have a ton popping up here in Columbus. We have a lot of home brewers um, in as far as like the microbrew and nanobrewery movement. It's definitely alive and well in New England. Yeah. Um, we have probably the amount of hops we grow. We grow it on the east side of the bio shelter and one of its functions is to keep the structure cool in the summer so it doesn't heat up too much early in the day. Um, and it's a vertical structure, so it's great for growing hops, and hops are perennial, so you get all that biomass, and you get the hops themselves, um, and I've learned other uses for hops, but we will end up giving a bunch of hops to friends that are home brewers. Yeah. If we added more hops to the property, we could actually get a contract and sell the hops to somebody that buys hops from farms here in New Hampshire and pelletizes them, so they can sell a more predictable product to uh, breweries. Um, you guys I, thought about doing that? I just, for me, I would be kind of forcing it to happen. I yeah. don't want to, I don't have enough space on the property where I want to create um, more space for hops. But uh, if I had a bigger property, that would be a great, you know, niche market for a farm. Yeah. And farms are definitely doing it. Yeah. The one I went to yesterday, they have a ton of, um, I mean, it was just the guy's backyard. It was pretty much he had a, a hoop house, um, some chickens he just started, and just rows of ginger. And, wow. uh, like, just love. And I'm not sure. I just kind of met him yesterday, but I know they, they got a few different plots. But he's they're doing some pretty cool stuff around Columbus. Um, and uh, But I, one thing, though, is, like, for me, it's always, you know, polyculture has definitely just been sticking in my head. And wanting to have that, that plant diversity, I think it's really – it's really important for a good landscape and a good ecosystem in your landscape and just attracting the right things. I mean, just from hearing everybody talk and just the research and just, you know, I don't have, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty fortunate just where I am in the city. Um, cause I have a lot of birds when I actually, surprisingly, I, I cut down a couple trees when I first started and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like, well, that's sun, that's taking up sunlight. So I should <laughs> cut those down. And then um, I ended up killing a dove. And I was like, well, this can't, it was a dove egg. And I'm like, man, that's not good fortune for me, I felt like. <laughs> and I felt really awful about it. And it was like, man, I should really slow my roll and try to figure out what I was doing. Because I had these, because then I had these trees in the front yard and they're like kind of in these hedges. And I thought about cutting out all the hedges. And I cut down one tree because it just was so big and getting out of control. And it was kind of a voluntary tree. And then I went to cut down the other, and then I noticed that these cardinals liked hanging out in it. And I was like, well, I like seeing those cardinals there, so I'm not going to touch that right now. And it's it's been, um, I just kind of like what you said. It's 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 been, you know, it, it's it's been a very, learn. it's been a huge learning experience to where when I first talked about gardening at work, um, then everybody was making fun of me because I didn't have my garden started. It was like, well, I want to I do this the right way. Like, I don't want to be... Right tilling every year and a lot of people just don't grasp it like everybody's asking me how my tomatoes are and i'm like i'm not growing tomatoes it's not, <laughs> it's not on the list right now like it's, i'm not in there yeah and then it's uh people ask like just weird things of, and it's like i don't hate them and then when they do want to do their own garden though they all are asking me for advice and for my help and i'm like i'm no expert yet but i'll gladly help take a look at your landscape and see what kind of ideas I, I come across or something that we could try. And, um, and I think that's been exciting too. And, I, and something that I've noticed too, just with even my friend Joel is like every time he's built a garden, like it's, it's like the way he's gotten more efficient at it and he's done different things. He's experimented with different things. And, um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the process. And then the one thing I, I forgot to ask, you know, we are running out of time, but, um, you're a, you're a permaculture family, you know. Now, when you were married, were you already kind of on the path of permaculture? Were you and your wife on there? Because I know no, that no, no. permaculture can be known to break up marriages because <laughs> one person understands and the other person doesn't. No, it's definitely um, it's made for some challenging conversations from both directions, I'm sure. But no, it was definitely something I discovered after I was already married and we were starting a family. And, I've had a uh, the good fortune of having a very supportive spouse as I jumped full steam into this permaculture movement. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that's awesome, and that's 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 good to hear. Um, well, I tell you what, Steve, I won't take up too much more of your time here. We are pretty much right at about an hour. So, if people want to, you know, keep in touch with you or follow your work, what's what's a good way for people to um, to kind of follow what you're doing and everything you guys have going on? There are a couple ways. Um, they can go to resilienceplanning.net and check out the website. Um, we have a resilience planning Facebook page, or they can find me on Facebook, Steve Whitman. And I tend to I tend to publish any of the workshops and stuff that I'm offering in any courses, um, you know, through the Facebook page. I've got a lot of university courses that I'm doing this fall, but we also have some. We have an urban permaculture, like half PDC, we're offering here in New Hampshire this fall. We have a a winter course on permaculture and local decision making. And I'm actually this week, even I'm offering a, a workshop on community planning, ecological design, and local decision making. Um, so I, I try to post all that stuff there. And real quick, so I didn't even ask. So you, you initially had, you, you started out with, with a background kind of in city planning? Correct. Yeah. Community and regional planning, environmental planning. That's awesome. I think every community and regional planner should embrace permaculture like you have, Steve. Like, I would like, agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy uh, the way it works. But, um, but anyway, Steve, I do want to talk to you a little bit after the show. So everybody go and um, check out Steve's stuff. Go to resilienceplanning.net. If you're in the New Hampshire area, definitely try to reach out to him. Friend him on Facebook. Like if you go to resilienceplanning.net. You scroll down, there's actually a link so you can like his page on Facebook. I just liked it myself today. Um, so definitely check it out, like it, and uh, subscribe to all the work that Steve's doing. Um, Steve, thank you so much for your time, man. I'm looking forward to having you on again. It was a great time talking to you. My pleasure, Drew. It was a good time. All right, awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>